You may have a seat. Beautiful singing church. Well, now I have an opportunity to introduce our uh, our guest preacher for this morning, um, Brother Brian Murphy. So Brian is a pastor down in Bakersfield. Um, we actually have, as a church, prayed for Brian, even from this pulpit. And many of you guys might remember that uh, Brother Brian had a stroke not too long ago. And so what a joy that he is here. He is well. He is enjoying his time and prepared to preach the word for us all. Diane is, I'm sorry, Brian is married to Diane, who is here with us. Diane, it's great to have you here. And you guys had some, uh, the fish house last night, huh? And you guys have four children. See if I got them right. It's Patrick, Brendan, Aiden, and Emma is here with us. It's great to have you, Emma. We're thankful for Brian and for his ministry. I think our relationship started shortly after probably Shepherd's Conference, right? I, I gave Brian a call um, because Tim Rafferty, who used to be a member along with Allison at Countryside Bible, had a good connection with a brother, Rocky, who was um, invested in investing in elders. And so both Rocky and Brian have a ministry called XL Ministries. And uh, so I reached out to Brian and just said, hey, I'd love to be able to talk to you about training men and getting guys ready for eldership. And man, you went above and beyond. You came out here and we sat down and had a meal together with the under shepherds. And he's provided resources for our church, has prayed for our church, has loved me as a pastor very well. And so brother, I'm just so thrilled that you've um, cultivated this relationship with me, have cared for me so well in my family. And I'm so grateful that you're here to come and preach the word for us. Would you please come and open up God's word? Well, good morning. Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4. That will be the main chapter we're going to be in, and we'll be working our way through um, 1 John, camping out there as well. Would you pray with me one more time? Lord, we are thankful to be here their Bible open on our laps. We pray that you would speak through your preacher, by your spirit, through your word, to our hearts. And we might have a greater desire to love you. The gospel might be preached, that Christ might be exalted. And we might have a greater desire to love you and live for you. To speak through your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I know two things about this church after meeting Dom and his wonderful family and getting to know some of the leadership here. I know two things abundantly have become clear to me. One, this will and always will be a theologically sound church. You have a pastor who knows his theology, and has a passion to share that with you. And so this will be a theologically rich church. That's exciting. I also know from meeting him and knowing some of you that this is a loving church. He loves the Lord. He loves his wife. He loves his family. You see that in their cool handshakes before they go to bed at night. If um, he loves you. He talks about you all the time, and knowing the leadership, they love you. And it's obvious that you love each other. And I hope you understand, beloved, how rare that is, that you can combine those two things. That you can combine rich theology with a genuine love for the brethren, because those two things don't often go hand in hand. 
You often have one or the other, or an emphasis in one, or an emphasis in the other, but biblically speaking, there should not be an and or, should there? There should be a both and. And in fact, it must be a both and. I would argue, though, that my plead with you this morning is that you would excel still more in the latter, in the love part. I would argue that that's even the most difficult one of the two. We talked about the Trinity today, and some of you can recite the Trinity, and you can defend the Trinity, and we can talk about some rich theology. We'll talk about imputation today and propitiation, and some of you can have great, vast discussions about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and really, Dom can, you know, sum that up perfectly for us while the rest of us boggle around with it, but those are easier than the love part. Those are easier to get our mind wrapped around than putting love into action, is it not? You know why we know that? You know why I can argue with that biblically and feel confident about that? Because of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were rich theologians, if you will. They knew the law. They knew their Bible. They knew it inside out, upside down. And they took great pride in that. Jesus had a problem with the Pharisees, did he not? He had a problem with them not because of their rich theology. He wasn't like, well, you got one out of two. You got half of it. We're good. His problem was that they had the rich theology, if you will, but it never got inputted or put into action by love and grace and mercy. And Jesus wants better for us. He wants us to be people who have both, who yearn to study, who yearn to be rich theologians, men and women who are rich in theology and know our doctrine and put that into practice. It's been said many times that our theology should rightly lead to doxology. That the more that we understand who God is and the more we understand of what he's done for us, the more we should just respond in praise to him. We see Paul do that often, even in Ephesians 1, as you read through those great profound passages and verses and and statements. Paul really walks through the Trinity in Ephesians chapter 1, talking about what the Father does in regard to our salvation and how does he end to the praise of his glorious grace. And then he talks about what the Son does in our salvation, and he has to just burst out in doxology to the praise of his glorious grace. And then he ends that section, really one verse, one long verse, like extolling the virtues of the Spirit in regard to our salvation. And how does he end? To the praise of his glorious grace. Our theology should always lead to doxology. And it is in this arena of love that I want to encourage you this morning from the book of 1 John. First of all, this morning, the priority of love. I want to remind us 
that it love, that it is love, that is the defining activity of the true follower of Jesus Christ. Love is the defining activity of the true follower of Jesus Christ. Please notice in our passage in 1 John 4, 7, beloved. See, love, John is at the end of his life. He's old man now. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. The man who almost surely was at the Last Supper and put his head on Jesus' chest. And you want to be that guy. And here he is at the end of his life with a tenderness. Beloved, he says to the church, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever love has been born of God and knows God. Again, remind us that love is the defining attribute of a Christ follower. Jesus said that, didn't he? By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Notice John says in our text, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves. Not, he, 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 not whoever recites theology, not whoever goes to church, not whoever gives the most. All of those are great things, but for John, the one thing that overrides the rest of them. Of course, he gets this from Jesus. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The defining activity of the true Christ follower, not fuzzy feelings about love, not easy sentimentalism, but true loving compassion for people, one of those things that ought to define our lives. And let us not forget where, importantly, where this love comes from. This love, he says, what? Is from God. Let us love one another, for love is from God. John would say in the next verse, an even more staggering statement, that it's not just from God, but 1 John 1 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. God is all of his attributes. God is holy. God is righteous. God is omnipotent. God is love. One of the most quoted passages, one of the most quoted phrases in all of the Bible is this one from Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, aren't we glad about that, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Not just has love, but is what? Abounding in steadfast love. We'll say it again in Psalm 103, verse 7 and 8, and multitude of other times in the Old and New Testament. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Don't we want mercy and grace? We need mercy and grace. We want what we don't deserve, and we need what we, we need that which we don't deserve. We don't want fair. 
Hell is fair. Hell is the most fair place on the earth. You get judged according to your works. What's fair? We don't want fair. We want grace and mercy. And the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And so, beloved, the love we possess comes from God because this is who God is. God is love, and he is abounding in steadfast love. We must also be reminded that not only is God love, he loves us. He shows his love for us, and he does that most profoundly in his son, does he not? God is love, and he shows us his love for us in the gospel and most profoundly in his son. I think of Titus 2.11, for the grace of God appeared. I love that phrase. The grace of God appeared. Appeared in who? In Christ, in a person, not in a theory, not in a doctrinal statement written down somewhere by one of the reformers, however great they were. The grace of God has appeared in his son. Of course, we know that all so familiar passage, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The love God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I'm reminded too, and I hope it will be encouragement to you of 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that statement. God made him who had no sin. Who could that be? It's only one person. Dom's close, but this, this, this is only one guy. <laughs> God made him who had no sin. I'm not talking to Dom's wife. Or just <laughs> God made him who had no sin? Jesus, of course. No sin. Rather, Hebrews, he was like us in every way, yet without sin. God made him who had no sin. Notice what it says, to be sin for us. John MacArthur said it so well. God treated Jesus on the cross as if Jesus had committed every sin by every person who would ever believe when, in fact, Jesus had committed none of them. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had committed every sin by every person who would ever believe when, in fact, he had committed none of them. Jesus was absolutely sinless on the cross. He did not become a sinner on the cross. He took our sin upon himself on the cross. God treated Jesus on the cross. Make this more personally, as if he had lived your life. God made him who had no sin be sin for us. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had lived your life. Jesus on the cross took our sin. My brother earlier talked about the word propitiation. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He propitiated our sin. He satisfied God's wrath for us on the sin, on the cross. 
God made him who had no sin be sin for us. The doctrine of imputation as well. God took our sin and credited it to Jesus' account. Is that fair? He didn't sin. Westminster Confession says Jesus never sinned in act, attitude, or in nature. But God took our sin and credited it to Jesus' account. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had lived our life. But the verse doesn't end there, does it? God treated Jesus, or God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And how does the verse end? So that in him, in Christ, we might become what? The righteousness of God. God took our sin. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ and credits our sin to Jesus, his wrath is satisfied. And then God takes Jesus's righteousness and credits it to us. He imputes our sin to Jesus, and he imputes Jesus' righteousness to us. God treats Jesus on the cross as if he had lived your life so that he can then turn around and treat you as if you had lived Jesus' life. God, in turn, then treats you as if you had lived Jesus' life. You are righteous in his sight doctrine of justification. He has declared you to be righteous. It's not your righteousness, is it? It's not mine. Can we do anything righteous? Can we work our way to be righteous? Never. Never in a million years can we do enough to be righteous because we sin one, we're guilty of breaking the whole of the law. Because of Christ's righteousness, because he fulfilled the whole law, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and our, his righteousness is imputed to our account. God can declare us to be righteous, justifies us. Luther called it an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness from outside of ourselves. It's not our righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness. Is that encouraging at all? Yeah. John says, beloved, love one another. But love comes from God. This love that we are to experience, this love that we are to share with one another, we'll get to in just a minute, has to foundationally, we have to know, is from God. It's who he is. And he has shown this love to us in the grandness of the gospel. And of course, when Jesus was asked, well, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus didn't say, well, don't worship idols. Don't murder. That would have been a good one. Don't commit adultery. Don't, don't steal. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? He summarized them by what? Love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your strength. And then love your neighbor. As yourself. John would say it this way in 1 John 3, 17 and 18, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Rhetorical question, it can't. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
Let's not just talk about it. Let's do it. And we can't do it unless we first know that God is love and we've experienced his love in this profound way in the gospel. So the priority of love, I'll read it this way. The priority of love is to recognize that love is the defining characteristic of God's people and that this love comes from the very nature of God himself and is displayed to us in the gospel. And that reality of what God has done for us ought to be the motivating factor for us to love others. So let us be rich theologians and deep lovers of God and of people. There is a priority of love. God is love. We love God. He loved us and his son. And so we're to turn around to love others. Two groups are singled out biblically. Second point, when we are to love our siblings, and then we're to love our strangers. We are to love our siblings, your brothers and sisters that are around you, the people sitting in this room, the people who are not here but are traveling somewhere. And I would say this, especially the people that are in your home. The closest proximity to you are the people that we are to exemplify this the most, and that's the hardest. Maybe it's just me, but that's the hardest for me. It's easy to love other people. It's easy to go on a short-term mission trip. I am St. Brian. (laughs) Two weeks, I got this. Put me at home, the marriage for 31 years, and I am a flawed, deeply flawed man. I preach this to myself. Look at 1 John chapter 2. John says this to us about loving our siblings. 1 John 2, verse 7 through 10. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Well, wait, is it old or new? Yep. It's old because the truth is still there, but new because the reality of it has now been lived out by Christ. Watch which is true in him, who? In Jesus and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. I'm really writing to you this new commandment. Why? Because... We've seen this so exemplified in the most profound of ways in Jesus Christ. It was spoken about in the Old Testament, and and there were some guys in the Old Testament who did this well and, and then who failed miserably at it. But now we have seen love incarnated. 
They've seen God, the God who is love incarnated. You have seen it manifested before your eyes. This Jesus is what it means to love. To love both his fellow disciples and we'll see to love the stranger. You know how to love? Watch Jesus. And Jesus loves his disciples so powerfully. When John wrote the gospel of John, the atopic gospel, fourth gospel, the one that sort of stands apart from the other three, the synoptics, John doesn't emphasize the bread and the wine like the others do, interestingly. It's almost as if he sort of said, well, you guys wrote about that. We got that one down. I want to emphasize another part. John emphasizes not the bread and the wine, but the basin and the towel. Jesus loves his disciples in a way they are completely unworthy of. They mean the 12 disciples. Those men that have walked with Jesus, saw the powerful miracles, saw what Jesus could do, saw blind men see again, saw deaf people hear again, saw people risen from the dead. A little girl, and Jesus says, Talitha kum, little one, arise. We saw Lazarus just a few days before this walk out of a grave. Those men will all leave Jesus. In fact, one of them already has to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. And yet Jesus is going to still love them. Jesus loves his disciples in a way, again, they are completely unworthy of. They will leave him. One already has. They will break his heart. They will abandon him. And he knows it. And he still washes their feet. And beloved, people in this church will hurt you. And you're still to wash their feet. People in this church maybe have hurt you. And you and I are just still wash their feet. This is not a quid pro pro when it comes to Christianity, is it? Well, you love me and then I'll love you. You do for me, I'll do for you. Jesus erases that. You just love as you have been loved. You love even when you will be hurt, when you're stepped on, abandoned, denied. You still love as a slave and wash their feet. Can you imagine, beloved, if the church really acted like this? Can you imagine if the church really responded like this? We truly loved each other like this. We're just going to serve each other. We're going to put aside our petty differences. We're going to put aside our pride, our thing, whatever it is. We're not going to complain about the color of the carpet. We're not going to complain about that song. We're not going to complain about what I'm just going to serve. I'm just going to walk in here and walk to the men's 
barbecue and the women's study and the kids' classroom, and I'm going to love as I have been loved. How powerful would that be? That is what the world around us needs to see, is it not? That is what a dying world and a, and, and a world that speaks of love but doesn't really do it. That's what will make a difference for them. That's when they walk in here and go, these people are different. Not in a weird way, but these people are different. They'll never be impressed with our music. They'll never be impressed. We can build the grandest cathedral. We built them. Jesus communicates to us and John communicates to us. Let them be impressed. Let them, let, let them notice our love for one another. It's not because we're anything special. We, we just understand who God is and how he's loved us. And that just compels us to then just love each other. To remind you, Jesus is washing the feet of those who were closest to him. And sometimes that is the most difficult, is it not? Those in close proximity to us are often the most difficult to love. I said to my wife and my daughter on the drive over here, I said, I'm going to preach this sermon, but I fear I'm not doing it very well. I need to do better. We can do better, can't we? Again, it's easy to love, easier. I love the people that are around us, and we just in, blow in and out of their lives, and we should be loving our siblings. But I'm telling you, we've got to love at home first. Too often I'm short with my wife, my kids, selfish and rude, a jerk. Those two closest to often often get the worst of us, right? Is it just me? Okay, good. Jesus said this. John tells us this in John 13. Jesus said to his disciples after he had washed their feet, if I then, your Lord and teacher, if I then, your Lord, your master, your God and your teacher, have washed your feet, so you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Beloved, would we make it a habit of whatever circle we're in that we would proverbially, analogously wash each other's feet? What we do is John exhorted the church in Philippi 
to consider one another as more important than ourselves. I told you the love part was harder. That's harder than defending the Trinity. As impossible as that is. Truly love those who are in the closest proximity to us and who are truly in this body of believers to love each other as God has loved us and to forgive each other as God has forgiven us. Would we do that? We are to make love a priority. We are to love our siblings. And lastly, thirdly, we are to love the stranger. The writer of Hebrews said it this way in Hebrews 13, verse 2. He said, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I'll let Dom explain the whole angels unaware thing and how that works and talk to him afterwards. <laughs> I want to focus on the first passage, the first part. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Strangers are people that are not our siblings, people not within our immediate sphere of influence, people you don't know. People that are outside the four walls of this building, so to speak, show hospitality to strangers. But don't we most often, when we think of hospitality, we think of, well, that's, that takes place in our home. Like, I have people over to my house. I have the gift of hospitality because my wife can cook and I can talk a little bit and we can play some cards or whatever the case might be. Have them over to my house. Well, okay, that's part of it. But think about this. Was Jesus hospitable? The greatest example of the person who was hospitable, right? Especially hospitable to who? Strangers. And he never owned a home. He had no place to lay his head. So we can't, there goes that excuse. I had a bigger house, I had a nicer house. I lived in Carmel, not in wherever, Bakersfield. <laughs> Garden spot of the world. I texted the people that we're staying with in Carmel. They're not there, so they left us their house. So nice. I said, you, you understand you get to wake up in this house in Carmel every day? I'm like, yeah, we know. Kind, hospitable to strangers. Jesus was all about being hospitable to the strangers, was he not? In Luke 15, one of my favorite passages we're going to come back in a couple of years. I'll preach that passage. I think it's one parable in three parts. In there, though, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, muttering amongst themselves, saying, the man receives sinners and eats with them. 
They were upset because Jesus was living among the strangers. He was comfortable with them. Make no mistake, Jesus didn't support what they did, right? They knew exactly who Jesus was. And their response more, way more often than not, in fact, we never have an example of them walking away going, oh, Jesus is good with whatever I do. They're bowing down before Jesus and recognizing his righteousness and his holiness and recognizing who he is. Would say to the woman caught in adultery, whether that's a true story or not, it speaks true, does it not, of who Jesus is. Go and sin no more. And Jesus would say in Luke 6.36, be merciful to his disciples in the In the Sermon on the Mount, be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. And the context there is to whom? Your enemies. Loving your enemies, Jesus says, be merciful. The biblical invitation is to live among strangers just as if we were at home. And God's love doesn't have God's love doesn't stay at home. It doesn't have walls. God's love doesn't stay at home. It doesn't have walls. His invitation is to love the stranger. I have just one picture. I don't often show a picture, but I have this picture of my grandson. His name is Haddon. He's be five in a couple weeks, and my oldest son and daughter-in-law and my Three of my five, our five grandkids are in Papua New Guinea as missionaries, and they just sent us this picture a couple weeks ago. Haddon making friends with strangers. The picture says a thousand words. That's blown up big in our house. Not just because I'm proud of my grandson, because it's a reminder to me of what Jesus is talking about. Haddon, at four years old, knows he's a missionary. He knows why he's over there, as he calls it, Papa Ganini. I'm over in Papa, I'm over in Papa Ganini. And he knows, I'm here to make friends among the strangers. No matter what color skin they are, what they are, that's my job. He understands enough of God's love for him that he wants to share that love on the other side of the world, 14,000 miles, 17 hours time zone difference away. I pray that we would do the same. Beloved, how do you treat the stranger? I'm going to ask you a quick question. Do you know any? Do you know any? It's so easy to just this, let this be our world. Believe me, I know as a pastor, it's so easy, man. This is my friends, this is my leader, this is my world. This, this, this is it. This is it right here. God bless you guys in the military. You, you know, outside work, I mean, you got people that you're interacting with. But again, it's so easy to leave that and think, well, this is where the real work takes place. I encourage you, it's both hand. Strive to be 
deep thinkers and rich theologians, strive to be lovers of God, strive to love our siblings and wash their feet, and strive to love the stranger. But you got to know them to love them. You put yourself in positions where you get to know unbelievers. I like to ride my bike. I ride a lot. One of the reasons I love to ride my bike is because I get to just hang around pagans. Like 99% of the guys that I ride with are not believers. You can tell it by their mouth and by their actions. And then they're always like, excuse me, preacher. Sorry about that. (laughs) Heard it before. It's all right. They know who I am and what I do. But I hang around them. I want to be around them. I'm developing friendships with them, deep friendships with them. I, I, I stroke a couple, week, couple months ago, and they, they were some of the finest, most on it people texting around. Hey, here what happened to Brian? Good people. I haven't, I've learned this. I won't belabor this much longer. I've learned this. Got to hear their story. The more I hear their story, the more I understand them. It's easy to get down on people, and it's easy to condemn people who don't know their story. Listen to their story. It was Bonhoeffer who said, only love gets close enough to know. Only love gets close enough to know. Beloved, would you and I get close enough to the strangers that are around us to hear their story, to get involved in their lives, as messy as that can be, we are called to do that. John, 1 John 4, 11 and 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And I leave you with 1 John 4, 7 one more time. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Would we make priority of love a reality as we become love? To understand who God is, that our love of God and his love for us transforms into our soul, a love for him and a love for others. But we as a church, Grace Church of Monterey Bay, would you be known as a theologically rich church? And would you be known as a church who deeply loves one another, who considers one another more important than yourself, who is known as a church who washes one another's feet? And would you also be known as the church who loves the stranger, who welcomes the stranger, who knows their story, who is involved in their lives, praying for that day, that divine appointment that you could share the gospel with them? And in all of these things, we exemplify our Savior, do we not? That's the goal. Christ would be exalted in our lives. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. 
We thank you for your word. It's easy to say these things and so hard to do. Lord, let us not just be hearers of your word, but let us be doers. Let us put these things into action. Thank you for this sweet church. Thank you for Dom and his wife and his family and the leadership here. God, bless this church. Bless the preaching of the word. Bless their ministry. Bless their fellowship. God, would they love you and love each other and love this community that you might be exalted and praised. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.